0: The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 188. Are you ready to think locally and act locally? Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. Before we get started, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan. And, of course, subscribe to my YouTube page at Brian McClanahan. Also, you can support the Brian McClanahan Show by going to redbubble.com. Get all your Brian McClanahan Show gear with my new logo on it. I guess it's not really that new anymore. We've had it for about a year now. So get out there and get that logo, get that gear. You can get it on a shirt, uh, towels, all kinds of stationery, all kinds of cool stuff. So uh, go to redbubble.com, do a search for my name, or you can go to uh, my page, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N. McClanahan.com and at the top of the page you'll see a way to get that gear um you can actually i think it's in the middle of the page also while you're at brianmcclanahan.com give me an email address and i'll give you a free ebook forgotten founders and a free audiobook read by yours truly so you're going to want those things uh great stuff there and uh Uh, you can support The Brian McClanahan Show that way. Now, I'm back to twice a week. This is the second episode of The Brian McClanahan Show for this week. So I'm really excited to be doing two a week again. It's been a while and uh, had to get back into it. But here we are, so you've gotten double Brian McClanahan Show. And also, if you want to get me three times a week on a podcast, you can also uh, go out and subscribe to the Abbeville Institute podcast that I do every week with that. And all those podcasts, if you do like this show, uh, please do share it around on social media, but also leave a good review on iTunes. The more reviews, the better. Uh, we can bump it up the charts, get more people listening to the show, and uh, that would also help the show as well. Okay, well, I'm, I was uh, planning on doing a topic today, and then I pull up my uh, pull up some news this morning, and I see that, amazingly, uh, there's an article on Fox News that... Uh, is on a similar theme today it's it's uh just an, i was I was pretty shocked but it's about children's television now i've got kids uh, they watch a lot of children's television or a lot they watch some children's television they we, we watch a lot of children's movies together as a family and so this is a topic that if you have children it's something that I'm sure you you wrestle with at times how much What should they watch? What program should they watch? How should they watch it? What things are okay, acceptable, preferable for my family? Uh, Everyone deals with this. And I think it's a really interesting topic for a variety of reasons. One, I'm going to get into, uh, we just went and watched a movie this this week, a children's movie, and uh, it got me thinking about how movies are, how children's movies are dealing with the issue of tradition, which is something I like to talk about. And then two, it's the idea of children's movies and what they mean for society or children's programming, whether it's television, movies, uh, entertainment. Children's entertainment and what that means for society and how important it is. And of course, the progressives have known this for a long time. We all know it, but it's, it's in this realm of education and what education actually means for modern society. So the, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna break this out into two parts. And uh, hopefully, at the end of this, you know, have a at least know where I stand on these things, and and maybe have a little thought provoking exercise on what these particular types of things mean for your family. So I want to start first with the meaning of these particular this of children's entertainment, how important it actually is, and we don't realize it. Um, If you look at the growth of progressivism in America. And you go back to the early 20th century. One of the things the progressives were very good at is something called permeation. Now, permeation, of course, is a scientific term. And, uh, but the progressives applied that to politics and society. The point being that they were going to get involved, they were going to permeate local organizations and then use that as a springboard to push the progressive agenda. They did this very well, whether it was at local government or local civics organizations like your Rotary Club, whatever it was. They were going to get involved in these local organizations, these local governments, and they were going to push a progressive agenda there, because they realized that top down wasn't going to work immediate. It wasn't going to work long term. Perhaps it could have an immediate effect, and no doubt. When Teddy Roosevelt becomes president in 1901 by accident, that had a dramatic effect on the future of progressivism in America because you had someone at the top who could push the agenda. A lot of people believed in the late 19th century that progressivism was dead, that it had been killed off. Of course, they were wrong, but what the progressives did at that point, because they didn't have any national electoral success until you got to the early 20th century, the reason being, they turned their attention away from national politics into local politics. And when you look at progressivism, there's two different parts to it. There is the, na- the national agenda, which is people like Teddy Roosevelt and then Woodrow Wilson and all the progressives, you know, Robert Fighting, Bob Follette, and all these people at the top who were pushing a progressive agenda through the U.S. Congress. But then there's the local agenda. And, and the thing about the local agenda and how important it was, it's what really turned the tide in America towards progressivism. In fact, I could do a whole episode on these different forms of progressivism and how most Americans, whether they realize it or not, are progressives on both sides. And what people really don't like in America is somebody else's form of progressivism. That, that's really the issue in America. It's the left doesn't like right-wing progressivism, and the right doesn't like left-wing progressivism. But the, the, the major parties, Republicans and the Democrats, are essentially all progressives, and they're all national progressives. They just don't like each other's type of progressivism. There aren't any people in, in the major parties anymore, at least uh, who are quote-unquote national politicians, with the exception of a few on the right or in the Republican Party, people like maybe Rand Paul or uh, you know, Justin Amash, people like that, that are uh, not progressives in terms of using the general government the way the progressives would want it to be used. Uh, but when you look at what happened at the local level, this is where it got really interesting. Uh, you had things like temperance laws. You had laws against prostitution. This is, the, this is the social gospel movement. This is reform. Even going back to the 19th century, it was pointed out that reform there, things like communism, socialism. Abolitionism, all these things were part of reform movements. And we can look at that and say, well, I mean, yeah, some of these things were good. Uh, But again, the left would like some of that stuff, but they wouldn't like the stuff that's temperance, because that's infringing on their liberty to do the libertine side of them, to do whatever they want. So the social gospel movement was pushing a moral agenda, whereas the left was pushing a more political economic agenda. But they're all pushing the same progressive agenda. It's all all there. And so part of that was getting involved in um, education. And you go back and you look at someone like Edward Bellamy. Edward Bellamy wrote a book entitled Looking Backward, 2018-88. It's a utopian novel. And the utopian novel became a gateway for many Americans into this progressive ideology. Because uh, the books are... Well, first of all, looking backward is a very boring read, but people read it. It was a bestseller. And they thought, wow, wouldn't it be great if we just had these wonderful th- things that, that Bellamy talks about in this book? You know, we didn't have any currency anymore, so everyone made the same. There wasn't any class conflict and social strife, all this stuff. And in fact, Bellamy was a genius because he didn't call it communism, which is essentially what it was. He called it nationalism. And then you had nationalist clubs, local organizations pop up all over the United States. And these nationalist clubs, the idea was to somehow push this agenda in your local community to become a, pro- a progressive conduit, so to speak. And then you had his cousin, Francis Bellamy, who authored the Pledge of Allegiance. And this is where you get into children. The Pledge of Allegiance was designed to get children thinking in a certain direction, that we have one nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. And uh, that particular idea came out of, was born out of the fact that even 30 years after the, the war the war for Southern Independence was over, uh, you, you had Americans now believing, not believing that that message, that to the progressives was the important thing that came out of that war, that we had one nation, indivisible, one nation, meaning one people, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. And when you, when you say those words over and over and over again, again, that's the gateway to progressivism. Because everything is, we're one nation, we have one government. One national government, it does everything. It's indivisible. The states don't matter. Now, to the progressives, they understood the state and local governments did matter because they were working within those things to get things like zoning ordinances, um, you know, even, uh, changing some of the traditional laws at the state level. For example, women's suffrage, uh, was affected at the state level first. They went after that first because they realized that they could get that done there. And then of course they went to the 19th amendment. That's just one example of progressivism. And we can, I mean, it's, it's not passing a judgment on these things. It's just saying this is how it happened. Uh but they did want people to believe that the central government became the be-all, end-all of everything. And then the terms liberty and justice for all. Well, that last line, uh, last word, justice, what does that actually mean? Is justice equality? Is justice social justice? How do we measure justice? How do we measure liberty? Is liberty a libertine idea, or is liberty the idea that you need to be able to hold property the way you see fit? I mean, how do you do these? How, how, how do you measure liberty? I've done a whole podcast on different versions of American liberty. Is it the liberty of the individual or the liberty of the community? Which one is more important? To people like Bellamy, who were essentially New Englanders, uh, the Bellamy family, it would be the liberty of the community. more important. It's more important than the liberty of the individual. Because that is the culture in which they were reared. So when you start getting young minds of mush invested in an idea, and that idea is liberty and justice for all, one nation indivisible, the power of entertainment in the media becomes so important. And one thing, a lot of people, you know, listen to this podcast, and I know a lot of people, they mean well. They they want to do well. And um, there is no panacea for anything. There's there, you know, for for education, but one of the things we do oftentimes in America, most families do, is they send their that they really want to do well for their children, and they're good-meaning people, and then send their kids off to the to the government schools or even to the private schools, and you're sending your kids off into an area that you really don't know who the teachers are, what they're going to get there, what they're going to be influenced by, the people that are influencing them. When you go back and look at the British cultures that were dominant in America. The two in the north in particular, but even in the south, um, where you had very tight-knit communities, you knew who the teachers were because these people weren't outsiders. They shared your same values. Quakers, for example, were only taught by Quakers, Puritans by Puritans. Um, You knew who these people were. And so when you sent your kids off to school, they were going to get the same type of values in that educational institution that you enforced at home. It was no different. Same thing in the Celtic communities, which were very tight-knit communities, even cavalier society, the people knew each other. All the teachers were vetted. And they weren't vetted by some outsiders who came in and got hired in a job, and then you didn't know who these people were, and then they hired people that you don't know, and on down the line. Now, to this day in your local schools, oftentimes people still live in the same community, so you might know these people, and they, maybe they, maybe you went to school with them. I mean, there could be there, there still is some of that in your local school. But you're seeing less and less of it because people move around, and uh, they get hired at a school over here or over there, or they move to this state to go work there because they want to be hired into that school district, whatever the case may be. And so you don't always know who the people are that are being hired hired into your school. You don't know the values. You don't know their their customs or traditions. And the public school teaches anything it wants to teach. It's an agent of the state. And same thing with the private school. If they get if they get federal funds, they have to follow certain rules and regulations. So you don't always know what your kids are going to get. The only way to stop that, of course, is to homeschool, and and um, you can do that because you have complete control over what environment your children are in. Uh, without question, you have complete control over that. But even in that, if you don't, if you want your kids to be, you know, in the world but not of the world. Uh, you they still have to be exposed to certain things at times. And uh, part of that is entertainment. And so when you look at entertainment and you look at children's entertainment, and you go back uh, you go back to the nineteen early, well, I, I just read an article about this. This is why I'm going to bring this up, but uh, it was on Fox News, I mentioned this, and you have Kristen Bell and Kira Knightley saying, "I don't let my kids watch uh, Snow White. I don't let my kids watch a Little Mermaid." And uh, the reason being is because they think that it's too uh, male dominated. You know, there's no consent. The prince just kisses the princess without any consent. And who eats an apple from a stranger? And why would a woman give up her voice for a man? I mean, it's very, they're they're taking a very feminist slant to these uh, particular movies. Um, and so you have this idea that this entertainment, and of course, Snow White, in 1938. Uh, Little Mermaid is the uh, what? Early nineties, nineteen ninety-one. So you have these these films, and Snow White, of course, is uh, a traditional type movie. It's a traditional Disney movie when Disney was very traditional in some ways. Of course, Walt Disney was a communist, and. Um, his he had a very leftist agenda oftentimes but you go back to some early disney films you look at song of the south for example which is now banned that's the uncle remus stories but song of the south had a very traditionalist message you go back and look at some early cartoons even bugs bunny and uh, you know you had uh, bugs bunny and the way the war was portrayed in some of the bugs bunny shorts which are not available anymore the road runner uh, film uh, you know shorts these are all funny but they're very traditional Uh, Now, I I look at. I I will say that um, you know I do have some issues with some of these Disney films for other reasons, Uh, but um, the, the the fact is, entertainment does matter. What your children watch on television, what they get on the small screen or the big screen, does matter, and. Of course, the entertainment executives are well aware of this, so they often push an agenda. Just go out and watch any of your television shows. One thing uh, that Disney, if you have the Disney Junior TV channel uh, and you watch the programming on that channel, there are no male leads on any of these Disney Junior shows. Every show is about a princess, whether it's Sophia the First or Vampirina or Elena of Avalor. Um, you don't really find, and even where you do have some male characters that are part of the lead characters, there's always there's always in a group. For example, one of the shows that's popular right now is PJ Masks, and you, it's a Canadian show. But you have uh, two little boys and a little girl, and no one's really the leader. Uh, the boys, though, generally there's one bad guy that's a girl, but all the bad guys generally are boys. There's two. Or actually, there's more than that. There's uh, three boy bad guys, and I think one or two girl bad guys. But uh, the but the girl bad guy is not as bad as the boy bad guys. You see, there is an agenda to all of these shows, and um, Disney has made it a point to um, push promote princesses. You know, uh, to push this feminine empowerment. That's part of the entire process, and so it has. It's very much agenda driven. Uh, You go back and look at some other television shows. Sesame Street is the gold standard of all. Sesame Street was created in the 1960s as a way to push a new left agenda, a new left social agenda, uh, without question. And, of course, it's affected. We can look at it and say, oh, they just want to teach counting and letters. But there certainly is a new left social agenda in Sesame Street. And how many kids were reared on that? And you get that when you're four, and three, and five, and six, and then that becomes part of your worldview. Blue's Clues, which is, uh, you know, that we're going back to the early 90s now. Blue's Clues, a very popular show in the 90s, had the same type of thing. Uh, Of course, it did have Steve, who was uh, a traditional lead character, Um, and then, of course, later Joe, but if you've watched the show, you'll see there's a definite leftist agenda at time in the show. Uh, without question, it's there. Um, and so it's little things like getting your kids to want to recycle. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with recycling. But um, it's because that is a, a good a good idea, you know, to, to reuse materials that can be reused. It saves money one way. Uh, but not just that. Um it's it's the idea that we're saving the earth, saving the planet, and this is this is the way it's often promoted. It's not promoted as a way to save money or to be a good steward of resources. No, it's there to save the planet. It's it's the leftist agenda. So television has an impact, and um, the way that children get these things has an impact, and. You can choose to have, you watch, have your family watch these things and have a conversation about it or whatever, how you ever want to do it. But, and a lot of parents know this is there, but a lot of them just... and, and Now, if you're listening to this podcast, you're, you're a smart person. You know this stuff is there. But most Americans don't really pay attention to it. They just, oh yeah, turn on the TV, the kids are on, whatever they're watching, I'm cool with that. As long as it's good, as long as it's G-rated, as long as it's PG-rated, I'm good with it. Um, and so I want to talk about, for the last little bit of this, of this episode, three movies that I found interesting. Now, all of these movies have a certain leftist agenda to them, but it's interesting how they work with this idea of tradition. And one of them is just fantastic on this particular issue. So, we just went and watched the film Littlefoot, which is um, a complete rejection of tradition. And I'm, if you haven't seen the film yet, it's about the uh, the yetis, the the... Uh, that live up in the mountain, and you've got the Littlefoot, the people, and they're trying to, you know, did they find the Yeti? Are these things real? Are little Feet real? So you have the colony of the, of the Yeti, and then you have the people, and they interact with each other. And one of the things, of course, when you get this is the music in the particular film is very much um, diverse. I'll just use that term. It's diverse. Uh, the, the actors that portray the characters are diverse. It's, it's a quote-unquote diverse cast um and so you have this diversity agenda. I mean that's the whole thing. These different groups getting along and trusting each other and liking each other. Uh and so, you know, these these people are bad, these people are good, but now we we realize they're all just good. And so it has uh when you look at uh some of the current political uh you know, political issues in America, one of the things of course is immigration and uh groups different groups working together and coming all together as one. We're all just one big happy family in reality. And so you certainly have a leftist agenda. And the, the thing that it goes after, and same thing with another film I'm gonna talk about, is tradition. At one time, the Yeti tried to work with the little feet, but they were attacked, and so they went and retreated up to their mountain, and they didn't come down. And the man that knows this is what they call the, uh, I think, the stone keeper. And the stone keeper has all these different stones, and they have to do different things all the time to all these different traditions, which turn out to be stupid, that people do these things, and it's, they're following a religion that's all fake. You see, the entire agenda of the film is religion is fake, traditions are stupid, people do things just because they have to, and they don't ever think about it. So if you start thinking about these things, well, and you start exploring, well, then all these traditions become worthless, one of the guys, his job is to hit a gong with his head every morning to make the sun come up. And it was told that it was a snail. If he didn't do this, the sun didn't come up. And that tradition is stupid. Uh, you know, this is worthless because they realize, oh, the sun comes up without doing this. Uh, all these traditions mean nothing. You see, it's an attack on tradition. And you have the young people that are pushing this attack on tradition, the the, the stonekeeper's daughter, who is really the brains behind the operation. Uh, and then you have the... the uh, the gong ringer's son, and they, they kind of like each other, and, and uh, the, the daughter and the son, and and uh, they, uh, they figure out that Littlefoot is is real, and uh, they, so I'm not going to get into the plot in case you want to see it, but certainly uh, you, you have this, this leftist agenda in it. It's a funny movie. Uh, I will say it's a very funny movie. Uh, I laughed out loud several times in the film. It has a good slapstick kind of humor to it, but it certainly has an agenda. And that agenda is an anti-tradition agenda. So um, you have to be aware of that when you go into it. The other film that's very much like this is Moana. And I bring up Moana because Kristen Bell and Keira Knightley said, oh, I think it was Keira Knightley. Oh, Moana's fine. That's a fine film to watch. Of course it is to Keira Knightley because it's a female empowerment film. And it's a rejection of tradition. Now, you could say in both Littlefoot and Moana, similar theme, they go back to what they used to do. The Littlefoot and the, and the Yeti start to work together, and it's okay. Uh, and in Moana, Moana figures out that all these traditions, and if you listen to the songs in Moana, I've had to listen to them a million times. Uh, there's a, there's a, one of the early songs, and one of the lines is, This tradition is our mission. And they have all their traditions, which is weaving baskets and gathering fish from the sea, fishing, and they're very sedentary people. These traditions have become part of their life. And Moana wants to buck that trend. Moana wants to figure out to get the, to get the heart of the, of the island and, and then go and find uh, Maui and all these things. And so uh, she figures out that they used to be explorers. And the king of the island wants to burn the ships because he realizes this is bad. But Moana figures out that all the things that are happening with her grandmother's help, they have to go and save the island and get the stone back. And, uh, but it's a, it, the, the idea is to reject tradition. Not listen to what your parents say. Your father says something, you don't listen to it. You do whatever you want. It's female empowerment, but it's also rejection of tradition. And so they figure out at the end of the day, Moana was right. They need to be out there on the sea again and uh, sailing the sea. Forget about staying home and being home folk and farmers and fishermen. No, it's more important to be explorers and go around and uh, find new islands and all these type of things. Adventure, which is, I mean, it's fun. Adventure's fun. And so the movie's fun. The music's fun. It is a fun. There's a lot of funny parts with Maui. Uh, But it is a certain leftist agenda. It's there. It's anti-tradition. So you have Littlefoot, which is anti-tradition. You have Moana, which is anti-tradition. And then you have a movie which I find to be one of the most interesting films I've seen in a long time as far as an animated film. And it's Coco. Now, when I first saw the previews for Coco, I didn't think Coco looked that interesting. It looked okay. but the film is fantastic on this issue of tradition. Now, a lot of people uh, may look at it and say, well, it's, it's also diversity. Of course, Moana's that. You have uh, Islanders, Pacific Islanders. It's a, it's a diversity-type film. Coco's that, too, because you have uh, a, a setting in Mexico. And so, of course, the agenda there is a diversity-type agenda. But the way they do it, you don't really get that feel for it. What you get is a pro-tradition pro-male lead character film. Uh, it, it was amazing when I watched this film and, and going through it and thought, wow, they were actually allowed to do this. Primarily because it was taking place in a Hispanic country. And so it's okay to be traditional if you're anything but European, uh, to have Western civilization as tr- the tradition. That's no good. But um, certainly it's okay to be traditional anything else. I love this film for the for the fact that it actually promotes tradition um, and it's a wonderful film uh Coco is just such a great film um when it comes down to this particular issue and so if you haven't seen it um, it's you have a little boy that wants to play music and his family won't let him do it uh, and because of the fact that his Uh, his uh, grandfather supposedly left the family. And so um, this was, or maybe his great-grandfather, I'm sorry, left the family because of music. And so the grandmother doesn't let him uh, play music, doesn't let anybody in the family, they're shoemakers, nobody gets to play music. Uh, It's just a complete rejection of that. And this little boy just wants to. And eventually they have the celebration the Day of the Dead. And this little boy gets transported to the other side. And he thought this was all just a bunch of hogwash, hooky stuff. There aren't really The dead aren't really around us. So it has an element of faith to it, which is amazing because he realizes, hey, this stuff is real. And when he goes to the other side and he finds the, the way that it works is you have to be remembered to exist on the other side. Somebody has to remember you. So the Day of the Dead, the idea is you remember your ancestors and uh, that way you exist on the other side. You don't float off into nothingness. As long as you're remembered on the one side you'll be remembered on the other side, and you'll exist. And he finds this character that's quickly fading away, and it ends up uh, being a very important person in his life, and that, it's it's an amazing look at family and tradition. I found it to be just a fascinating movie, because these traditions, and this little boy becomes so interested in the traditions, he finds out that his family is actually a musical family, and very important musical family, And tradition becomes essential in his life. It's important to hold on to the traditions. It's important to to remember your family members, to remember them and honor your family members, to honor your family. Now think about that. With the rejection of the nuclear family in modern society, this is a complete acceptance and celebration of the nuclear family and to honor and cherish the family. It's an amazing movie for that. And, of course, the color and all the stuff, I mean, the the kids are going to love it if you haven't seen it because of all the color that goes into it. It's, It's an amazing experience in that way, too. Visually, it's just a fascinating film. But because of this emphasis on tradition, I loved the film. It was so good. And I walked away from that film thinking, yeah, I mean, it would be great if every children's animation film could be like this. That the important thing is to hold on to your family, family matters. Family matters. Um, and family is the essence of community. And remember and respect your ancestors. Respect them. That was important. Respect them. And so and, and respect traditions. Respect ancestral customs. Do these things because they're important in life. And so I love that movie Coco for that. I mean, it was just. Amazing in that particular way. And uh, I think that if you haven't seen Coco, you should go watch it. The other ones are funny, too. I mean, Moana's funny and Littlefoot's funny. But you have to understand the agenda's there. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's part of it. And uh, I, I think that if we could do anything, and people ask, you know, what can you do in the liberty movement or the conservative movement, whatever you are, wherever your political slant is, against the progressives, what can you do there? One thing we ignore all the time is children. You gotta you gotta get your children believing in something in that way. And now you have your own family, and of course you have this is think locally, act locally to its T. You you can do the to the T. You can influence your own family, but if you want to do something else, go out and get involved in your local school board if you still want to be involved in the schools. And I mean that's great. Uh, you know, get out involved in your local civics organizations, but also get involved with children because. If you can have a positive image of libertarian or conservative, or you have a positive image with those things, tradition, if you're a traditionalist, have a positive image on tradition. It is going to go a long way in beating back progressivism. Tradition is often the enemy of anything to the progressives. Tradition is the enemy. So if you can somehow promote a positive image of tradition... That is going to knock them down. Uh, why tradition matters. For so many reasons, it matters. But if you can promote a positive image of tradition, that is going to help stem the tide of progressivism. And the way you do it is with kids. We ignore that all the time. We ignore young people, the youngest people in education. We all want to educate college people or adults and even high schoolers. The youngest people matter because if they can start believing something when they're young, uh, when their mind's a mush, the progressives know this. You get them believing progressivism when they're a five-year-old. They're going to be progressives almost their whole life. Unless they really have a moment where they they wake up and they reject it. Uh, And that's hard to do. Once you get them to a point, it's very hard to do. Uh, There has to be some type of aha moment uh, where they reject it. We we often look at this doing these things through the church, but there's also the secular that needs to be done here because you go to the church. That's only once, maybe twice a week. If you're if you're a really if you're maybe an Orthodox and you go every day. I mean, there are some Orthodox people that do that, but uh, you know, most Protestant Americans go to church maybe once twice a week. Uh, Catholics once a week. Uh, Orthodox people once a week. Um, so that's not sufficient. Uh, it, it's And it's the church, it, there's still the secular world that you live in, and you have to influence that world as well. And so this is where the children's entertainment and entertainment in general matters. And get involved in these things. Uh, it's not something I can do. I, I don't know anything about it. Um, in making a children's show or a children's entertainment program, I try to keep my shows uh, G-rated so that kids could listen to it. Um, but at the end of the day... Uh there still is entertainment out there that these kids need music, uh, visual entertainment, you know the visual arts, all of these things are necessary. and so uh, that is a uh, part of this, you know in in and changing minds, thinking locally, acting locally, get involved in those things uh, because it does mean a lot for the future. this is a long this is a long war. The culture war is a long war, not just that uh, the Uh, The political war is a long war. It's not going to, I mean, it could get worse before it gets better. We can't just say, if we get the top, we're going to change everything. It has to come from the bottom up, and it has to come even from the secular society and the family itself. It has to come from those things, too. So I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you next time. (laughs)